This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I'm your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Danny Lavery. With me in the studio this week is my guest, Jason Carini, an attorney who works in recruiting for the legal industry here in the Bay Area. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am so excited. Um, Anytime I like I have two friends who work in like legal adjacent fields. And I try to get them to answer so many of the like legal adjacent questions that we get. And um, they're very tired of it. So I'm very <laughs> excited to have somebody else who can preface everything with, now I'm not your lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I will confess that was exactly what I was I was going to do slash try not to do. All of my lawyer friends are very, very careful when I ask them for their take to say, I'm not an expert in this field. Um, <laughs> or even if they are, even if they're absolutely an expert in that field, they're like, now this isn't my actual specialty. And of course, I'm not, uh, you know, being retained by this person. So ignore everything I say. Right. Fortunately, I'm not an expert in any field in particular, so I won't have that that issue. Great. Well, I mean, I guess in terms of recruiting, maybe some of these people, you could recommend them potential future jobs they could look for. That could be relevant. Yeah. Um, I, I'm very excited about the letter that we're starting with because I think it's a real straightforward answer. But I also think there's lots and lots of really uh, exciting, potentially thorny things that we can encourage this letter writer to reflect on when it comes to their own behavior and choices. So with that in mind, would you mind reading our first letter? I'd be delighted to. Subject, I can't stop snooping on my old job. Dear Prudence, a few months ago, I left a truly toxic job for a role in a much healthier environment. I'm one of four key people to leave the small organization in a few months. Our replacements have... um, I assume this this should be almost no experience, uh, which the executive director actually prefers because she can force them to do her bidding. They're in serious debt, and it's a question of when they'll close or seriously downsize. I know that I should move on, but I am so morbidly curious. Despite unsubscribing from their emails and unfollowing them on social media, I still snoop. They never change their email and account passwords, so I can still log in and see what ridiculous decisions they're making. I know I need to stop doing this. It just makes me mad that I was never listened to and that they're undoing the good work I accomplished. But it's so hard. Any tips? So without coming down too hard on this letter writer, I think this is a great example of like, I can't let go of this supposedly toxic environment and I get a lot out of returning to the same situation and kind of wallowing in the mire. Right. Yeah. It certainly seems like um, like this is unhealthy behavior on like several different levels, I guess. Um, so I, I definitely feel bad for this letter writer that they're kind of trapped in that uh, mindset even after even after escaping. And I, you know, I give them a lot of credit for escaping because a lot of people just stay in that bad environment. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this doesn't mean, by the way, like, so obviously you deserved to be treated badly or or it was somehow your fault. I just think this is a really great moment to stop and acknowledge why am I effectively like trying to harm myself right, right. by doing this. So uh, in terms of like, what do you do? Send an email just saying you need to change your passwords, right? 
well. <laughs> or, or is that like opening yourselves up to possible? Yeah. And here we get into the first time when I should give a disclaimer about, uh, <laughs> about, um, about how I'm not representing any particular person or, and I'm not an expert in this field and that this person should definitely go hire an attorney who is those things. Uh, I guess, um, r- right. So there is actually some, some potential legal liability here. I mean, uh, so, uh, in fact, um, Technically speaking, the laws that they have about uh, hacking are even maybe applicable. And so, um, you know, this is unauthorized computer access. And it could be like a, you know, not to be overly scary, I guess, but like a federal crime. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it would be certainly best to not, not be logging in anymore to um, a computer that they're not supposed to be accessing. But also, um, uh, right, I think there there is a potential issue there. I think I would... Um, I would probably not tell them to change their passwords. I'd probably just try and ignore the whole thing and move on and hope that this doesn't doesn't become an issue. I mean, I think it probably won't. I mean, it sounds like they're disorganized and probably it doesn't matter. And it doesn't sound like this person is using that access for anything particularly nefarious. And so yeah. I think yeah. that's um, you know definitely definitely a point in their favor. Yeah. Um, Right. I think I think there's definitely greater chance that uh, this will become a problem if they bring it up to somebody. So it's right. sort of one of those. It's tricky because uh, I, I agree that morally speaking, that seems like the right thing to do. <laughs> but um, but that's helpful. I, I definitely don't want to. I, I think what they, they need to stop. I don't think they have done anything so serious that it's like you need to confess and come forward and like take your lumps. I think this is absolutely just, uh, you know, if you kept doing this, the odds that at some point you might feel like. I want to forward this ridiculous email and then potentially expose yourself to further trouble or just that they'll eventually catch on increases. So if you can, if you need to like block whatever sites you have used to log in, if you can do that, do that. It might help to just like write down what is it like? When are the moments that I feel the most tempted to go log in? What's going on with me in those moments? Can I like am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I frustrated with my current job? Am I bored? Like, can I identify any triggers that lead to wanting to snoop? Uh, and then also just like write down what do I feel like after I snoop? Just so you kind of have a little record of like, oh, here's maybe part of why I'm doing it besides just morbid curiosity. What are other ways I can address those needs? Um, and just kind of identifying like, what am I getting out of this so that I can make a different decision? Um and if it helps to just write down, like, today I really wanted to fucking log into my old email accounts and I didn't and it sucked and I'm irritated, you know, yeah. figure out a replacement. As as my listeners know, I am always quitting cigarettes <laughs> and I'm always looking for, like, a different way to, like, really replace them with something else. You can't. Nothing else is like cigarettes. Nothing else is like them. <laughs> but, yeah, I will often try to, like, write down, like, I really, really wanted to smoke if I wait 30 seconds, sometimes that passes and that really helps. It doesn't always work perfectly, but I think sometimes it feels like if I identify a craving, um, then it will overwhelm me. And in fact, the opposite is often true. I mean, yeah, that sounds like uh, like fantastic advice for for any kind of, like if you're having thoughts that are, you know, not helpful thoughts that are where you're kind of encouraging yourself to do something harmful. I mean. Yeah. So letter writer, you take up smoking. I will take up not checking your old email accounts and we can be accountability buddies. To summarize, our legal advice is take up smoking. (laughs) Jason, thank you so much. Um, I think I should probably, we should probably move on. I will read our next letter. Uh, The subject is no more personal calls at work. Dear Prudence, my workplace has a strict policy of not giving out employee information over the phone after a stalking incident several years ago. We can't even confirm if someone works here. We just transfer calls to the relevant department. 
Sally, has been with us for six months now. She's an older woman who usually doesn't have her cell phone with her. Often it's broken or turned off. Her adult children call the office to speak with her. So if she's away from her desk, those calls enter the phone queue. I'm not allowed to tell them where their mother is or when she will get back. I know who they are, but no matter how often I repeat the policy, they get snappish and treat me like I'm stupid. Worse, they expect me to take messages to their mother. Their lives are extremely chaotic, and they constantly bombard their mother with requests. I told Sally she needs to get her cell phone fixed. She keeps saying she will, but nothing happens. Recently, Sally's daughter called eight times in an hour because she couldn't figure out who was going to pick up her daughter from daycare. On the last call, I told her this was not appropriate. She yelled at me to, quote, stop being a bitch and get her mother on the phone. I got up and went over to where Sally and our supervisor were talking. I told Sally to go to my desk because her daughter kept calling and was cursing at me. Sally turned red and our supervisor told her to handle it. Our supervisor ended up giving Sally an official warning. Since then, Sally has still been getting calls but hides them. I get constant hang-ups, and Sally will act particularly suspicious when she gets one and spends a long time on phone calls. Sally also acts very cold towards me. I attempted to apologize once, and she cut me off. I apparently had no idea how, quote, hard it was to be a single mother. I'm losing my patience. Sally spends up to 20 minutes talking to her kids while I handle the real calls. It's extremely hard to find time to go to the bathroom or even take a break. I'm pretty sure if I tell her supervisor again, she will let Sally go. I don't want Sally to lose her job. I'm sorry her kids are going through whatever they're going through, but that has nothing to do with our work or me. Yeah, it sounds like a a tricky situation. I guess, you know, first glance at it, I I guess I feel like um, I I certainly sympathize with with a letter writer's uh, predicament here. There's a part of me that wonders if um, just being super professional about it is the way to go. Uh, and yeah, I guess I'm, I'm a little curious about what kind of what their phone situation is such that this person is always having to take those phone calls from the, the children. And um, I guess I find it a little surprising that that burden isn't shared among several people or something. I'm, I guess I'm not sure exactly what the situation is. Right. Um, but I guess I feel like at the very least, you just answer each phone. Like, oh, uh, I'd be happy to transfer you, <laughs> or whatever, you know, and and don't don't engage at all. And just, um, I think in terms of whether whether it makes sense to tell the supervisor again. I mean, I, so if it's at the point where it's affecting the letter writer's work and and their ability to like use the bathroom, that to me feels pretty. Yeah, no, that's obviously well, and although that also makes me wonder about what the work environment's like. If that's because you know, if this person is doing so much work so constantly that they can't use the bathroom, I mean, there's there's a problem there anyway. I mean, right. somebody's not supervising them, or or there's their policies are such that I mean, there's there's some there's some issues there with that workplace. It feels like, but certainly, I, I you know, from like a moral perspective or whatever, I mean, if you're at a point where it's affecting your life that somebody else is doing something, I mean, I think bringing it up to the proper authorities is sort of what you're supposed to to do. I mean, yeah. I, you know. Yeah, my 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 thought here is this goes pretty far beyond to whatever extent she may have trouble financially fixing her phone and to whatever extent her daughter had a real genuine problem with not being able to pick up her child from daycare. I have sympathy. The solution to that is not call your mom's coworker eight times and call her a bitch. Right. So to me that feels like you cannot at this point make up for like you you can't protect Sally by putting up with this kind of behavior. Like, you don't deserve this. You are doing your best to work. This is not appropriate behavior to bring to the workplace, regardless of what's going on in your personal life. So I know you say that you're pretty sure that if you tell your supervisor again, she's going to let Sally go. If all she's done so far is give Sally an official warning, I think maybe you actually feel a little more guilty than you need to. Like, 
whether or not they decide they need to let Sally go kind of isn't up to you. You need to let them know it's difficult for you to do your work right now because Sally is not able to do hers. And they can maybe come up with a performance plan for Sally. Like, you don't have to say, here's what I hope you do. Like, you need to let your manager handle this so that you can do things like go to the bathroom and not get called a bitch when people call to ask where their mom is. It does seem like like not that not that high a floor, I guess, for, yeah. uh, for workplace situations. Frankly, I think the fact that you attempted to apologize to Sally suggests that you feel more responsibility than you need to to manage this for her and that you maybe apologize to readily when somebody else has actually done something that they should apologize to you for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think, if anything, the letter writer is bent over backwards to be accommodating here. And, and I, I understand why. And I, I certainly hate the idea of uh, somebody losing their job who really needs their job. But, you know, there's only so far that you can make those kind of accommodations. Right. Um, and and I think even if you never said anything, the odds that Sally would be able to keep her job. Do you know what I mean? Like, if she's doing this all to you and her kids are doing this all to you, she will do it to other colleagues. It will eventually come up in some other way. I don't even think if you tried to keep this to yourself that it wouldn't eventually come out that she's not answering phones um, and that her kids are harassing other colleagues. Sure. So of I, I don't even think that you could keep her from ever experiencing consequences at work. So, um, yeah, I agree. Whenever you get a call from the kids, just end that call immediately. Either say, like, I'll transfer you or I'm not able to answer that question and then hang up right away. Don't get drawn into a fight um, and, and let your supervisor know what's going on. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> Do you want to uh, handle the one about melting? Sure. All right. Subject, melting at work. Dear Prudence, I work in a small office in a really old building. My department's in the basement. During the winter, my office gets so hot, usually around 77 degrees, and the humidity is always under 20. I have a thermometer in my office. Sometimes it gets up to 80 degrees and 15% humidity. I get so hot that I feel sick. I already have some health issues that sometimes make me feel ill at work. My skin is dry and cracking. Sometimes I take a walk around the block, but I can't take a walk 10 times a day. The problem is it's only my office that gets this hot. I've tried to talk to my coworkers about turning the heat down a few degrees, but they continue to turn it up high. I've tried to wear less clothing, but I can't take off much more. I also prop the door open and run a fan, which helps a little. But I often meet with clients and have confidential phone calls that require my door to be shut. My face is always bright red from the heat. I get frequent comments about how I look. How do I handle these comments? I want to yell at my coworkers that it's their fault. Am I being unreasonable? What should I do? Well, you're not being unreasonable. No. <laughs> I guess I'm very curious about what, what these comments could be or, or why it would occur to anybody to comment on, well, first, commenting on other people's appearances at your job is already like not, not a great way of going. I, um, I imagine that it was about like, gosh, your face looks red, which feels so rude to me because it's like you all know she's complained about right. how hot her office is. Put two and two together. Right, right. That seems, um, although I, I guess um, expecting people to People to pay even a small amount of attention to each other is maybe maybe more than I should be doing, but still. I will um, say, by the way, I went and looked up like just to see if like OSHA covered this. <laughs> but they don't. They don't. Especially not in office environments. There's like a, a recommendation that offices, not offices, but like um, work sites keep temperatures between 68 and 76 degrees. But even that wasn't like will automatically come in and shut you down if you're regularly at 77. It was. Right. Yeah, this is definitely an area in which I like really definitely, I promise, have no relevant <laughs> knowledge or information. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised uh, if that's if that's the case that there's no specific like this temperature is out. I think even if there were, I'd be surprised if it was 
um, even in that like 77 kind of neighborhood, because that's like definitely on the high side for actual humans. But, um, you know, the way that I mean, employment laws are usually not so favorable to actual humans. And so, yeah. you know, I mean, my first thought, of course, was, well, get, it's time to get a new job. <laughs> but I might have a conflict of interest on that idea. I think um, it's always good to have that in your back pocket to be on the lookout. My thought was they say that they talk with their colleagues about it, but I'm curious who their supervisor is. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can really lean into the part where you have to meet with clients, because I think if you can especially frame this as like it's an uncomfortable environment for clients to meet in, that might help your case. And maybe invite your supervisor to come sit in your office with the door closed for a couple of minutes and get a sense of how uncomfortable it is. Yeah, um, that that would be my first thing is like clearly the colleagues aren't going to turn the thermostat down anytime soon. So go over their heads. Right. And, and that seems like an extremely, I mean, given given that it's affecting um, the letter writer's work, I mean, I feel like it's, you know, a very clearly uh, a situation where talking to your supervisor is a good idea. Right. And you have totally clear, like, complaints, which is that, like, I often feel sick. I assume it affects the clients. They probably notice that it's 77 as well. Um, I sometimes have to, like remove my coat and I'm worried I don't look professional. People have often commented on how red my face gets. Like, this is affecting my work. I'm not yeah. just um, like being a princess in the pee. Um, and so I think make a lot of complaints. Be polite, be professional, but like make a lot of complaints to your supervisor and ask for a different office. Yeah. And it sounds like it should be like, it's it's not one of those things where, you know, you have to prove something. I mean, it's, it's right there. Like everybody yeah. knows that the office is very hot and it's something that's demonstrable. So I feel like um, it should be a fairly straightforward like and you know if it turns out that that the letter writer has tried this and the supervisors aren't for some reason um, like amenable to making any changes that probably tells you what you need to know about that job. I mean yeah certainly if any of your colleagues continue to make comments I think to just say you know that I'm trying to deal with the fact that my office is overheated please stop commenting on my appearance. Yeah absolutely. Push, you know shut that down. Um, but yeah, complain to your boss loudly, get a new office in the meantime. I, 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 if this were me, I would be like, not just looking for a new job, not just complaining to my boss, but like, I'm not going to work in that office anymore. What other options do you have for me? Yeah. But that's also because I, I can't stand being too hot. I'd, like, <laughs> I'd, I'd truly rather like be fired than have to deal with this. Cause this just, it sounds like actual hell. Hmm. <sighs> Sorry. But, I'm just like now imagining being too hot and I'm. Starting to worry that I'm about to become too hot. This next one is a head scratcher. I think it's my turn to read it, which is a shame because it's very long and complicated. <laughs> but the subject is my dad has stopped paying my mom's alimony. Dear Prudence, I'm in my early 20s and my parents have been divorced for over a decade. It was acrimonious at first, but over time they mellowed out. Until recently, they'd even been playing cards together sometimes. In September, my dad announced, seemingly out of nowhere, that he would stop paying my mom's alimony. He sent a letter via his lawyer that due to his worsening chronic illness, he was diagnosed eight years ago, he'll have to retire sooner than he anticipated and stop supporting my mom. But he recently told me that he'd switched to a better medication and regained functions he thought he'd lost. Moreover, the alimony contract specifically says it cannot be changed, quote, for any reason, and there are at least six years of alimony left on the schedule. My mom works a low-paying job. Before they divorced, she was a stay-at-home mom. This alimony allows her to live a middle-class lifestyle and save for her own retirement. Without it, she would likely have to sell her house and maybe move in with my sister or my grandparents. 
She's doing okay for the moment, but she is bleeding money in legal fees, along with the cost of simply living. My dad is a doctor with a six-figure income. He's made odd decisions in the past, like dating a woman in another country he met via a language learning app and almost buying her a condo as a, quote, real estate investment. So anything seems possible. My mom has always told me not to let problems between her and my dad affect my relationship with him. But it feels wrong to continue my relationship with him when he's thrown a hell of a wrench into the works. I love him, but I'm really disappointed and frustrated with him. He's going to fly out to visit me where I live abroad in January, but I don't know how I'm supposed to spend a week having fun with him knowing what I know. As an adult child, I'm wondering if I can do anything here. Is it just not my role to try to intervene because I'm their daughter and I'm not supposed to get involved? Or would it be irresponsible not to try to do what I can? Can I tell him not to come visit if he doesn't start following the contract again? I know I can't control my parents' relationship, but I don't like feeling helpless either. Right. So I guess I have, I have two thoughts that are a little bit in tension with each other. Uh, mm-hmm. One is, I think that the letter writer definitely shouldn't be so involved in this that they're like dictating the terms of the, you know, the the settlement agreement between them or, or trying to, um, I mean, it's definitely something that the, the parents have to sort out. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it's very, very reasonable to feel disappointed, to feel frustrated at the way that um, that their dad is acting here. And certainly, um, if that's going to affect the, you know, how you're feeling about this pending trip, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I think uh, I'm hoping there's some kind of middle road that <laughs> that can be found uh, where uh, I don't know, talk talk to the dad and basically say, hey, what the hell? What's going on here? Why do you think this is an okay thing to do? And see how you feel about the response. But but I think that it, it should not be because you're looking to change his behavior yourself, um, because I don't think that's something that, that you're really in a good position to do. I think it should be because you're trying to figure out um, whether how you should feel about him when he comes to visit and uh, whether you can have fun with him when he's in town, you know, knowing what you know. Right. I I feel both of those things as well. I think that that's the right balance to strike. It's like, yes, you are absolutely allowed to talk about what you know and to let your dad know if you disagree or that you have questions about choices he's made. I also agree that like the good news about your mom bleeding legal fees is that means she has a lawyer. Right. You know, and that lawyer is much more qualified than either you or your mother are to figure out whether or not your father has violated the terms of the alimony agreement. Right. One thing I do want to leave a lot of room for is both that your dad has made some, let's say, possibly erratic romantic decisions in the past and that he's not just like malingering. I I think oftentimes when it comes to chronic illness and disability, people who are not themselves disabled tend to think they tend to view anybody's like worsening condition as automatically something to be viewed with suspicion. Mm. Like you're probably exaggerating. It's probably not that bad. You said you were feeling good the other day. So you must just be doing this to try to get something. And that often makes life for people with chronic illness and disabilities much, much harder than it needs to be. And it's a big part of why I think it's so often difficult to have even the most basic of accommodations possible in public, because there's this real sense of just like, you're probably making it up. It's probably not that bad. Figure it out. So again, you can certainly ask your dad questions about this, but I I would just say, like, leave open the possibility that he has switched to a better medication, that he has regained some function he thought he'd lost, and his condition is also serious enough that he's not able to practice as a doctor for another six or seven years. Right. That does not strike me as inherently contradictory. So I, I think you need to, when you ask your dad about that, approach it from a position of... 
assume good faith, ask the questions in a way that is not like, I gotcha. Like you said you were feeling better on this medication, so this must be bullshit. It might be. You may ask him these questions and come to the conclusion that he is doing this to try to get out of paying your mother. And at that point, you might decide to tell him, I think that's really fucked up. You and I are in a fight now. <laughs> right. But hold off on that and and really check yourself for potential like ableist thinking here. Um, so So all that to the side, I would just say, the worst thing it sounds like that could happen to your mom is that she sells her house and moves in with family members. Okay. Yeah, that sounds She's got like a house. A That's a great asset. She'll be able to make money from that sale. Um, and she has multiple family members that she could live with. And she's currently living a middle-class lifestyle and saving for retirement. She may potentially downgrade to a working-class lifestyle and saving less for retirement. None of that sounds like such a crisis that you need to worry about. Is my mom going to be able to eat this week? Or is she not going to be able to pay her medical bills? Or is she going to be homeless? Like, she's an adult. She will figure this shit out. So, yeah, again, not to say, like, you shouldn't care about this. Don't don't get involved. But just... um. You can talk to your dad about it, absolutely, but your mom is going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I get it. It's hard. You're in your early 20s. Um, this is a big change in your parents' relationship. Of course, it affects you, but I, I think there's definite room for you to step back here. And I'm glad that your mom has said, you know, this is between your dad and me. And yeah. um, that's a that's a really good sign. And so I think there's reason to believe. It doesn't sound like she's panicked about like, yeah. oh, no, I might have to sell my house. How will I live? So I think maybe you're more worried about than she is. No, no need to borrow trouble, I suppose. And, and I think, right, I think it's a, a, a really a, a testament to your mom that um, that she has taken that attitude. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I think there's a lot of reason to hope for a good outcome here. Yeah. And so I would just say most of the stuff that you say you want to bring up with him, totally. I think rather than saying, if you don't start following the contract again, don't visit me. Ask questions about why he made the choices that he did. If you feel like the choices that he made were rash or thoughtless or that he didn't share this with her in person because he was feeling a little cowardly, um, then tell him so. And you can absolutely revisit the visit if you need to. But don't jump to that um, as your first option. All right. Next letter's all you. I said as soon as you picked up water and started drinking it. So take your time. No, no. Um, future care falling to my sister. Dear Prudence, at 19, I became disabled with a sudden onset inexplicable pain condition and relied on my parents for several years. We we're a very close family. Twelve years later, my condition is stabilized. I live nearby, but alone. I got a master's degree and managed barely to take care of myself, except in one big way. I'll probably never be well enough to work full-time and support myself financially. Through lots of work, blessings, and privilege, my parents have saved enough, not just enough to take care of me financially now, but to take care of themselves in their old age. They're in their 60s and perfectly healthy, but I've recently realized I won't be able to do much to support them as they age. I can give them emotional support, but everything else, affairs management, physical caretaking, will fall to my older sister. So would my care if it came to that. She's loving and wonderful, but that's still a huge burden. I wanted to ask her if she's prepared for that, but I know she won't have the conversation because it's too early, too sad. It's not necessary. We don't know what will happen. I could get much better, etc. Is it too early, unnecessary? And if not, how do I have it? This one worries me a lot. Um, my immediate 
concern here is the assumption that your sister will have to become a full-time caretaker for your parents and then you. That's not an assumption you can make on somebody else's behalf. So even approaching it as like, how am I going to like break it to her that she's going to have to do this? Right. Is like, no, she does not have to. And if she says no, you and your parents need to make alternate arrangements. You should probably have started making these arrangements or at least talking about them a while ago. Right. I guess um, maybe a short answer is it's definitely not too early to be worried about these ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely necessary to be worried about this. And, and I think that the approach that, that you need to take, though, right, um, should not be one where you're, you're making assumptions about how this is going to go. But instead, I think I'd be asking a lot of questions. Yes. What is, what is our plan as a family when these things happen? Absolutely. Um, um, and, and your sister may volunteer information. You can certainly ask, do you have any thoughts? Do you have any concerns? Do you have any preferences? This will be more than one conversation. Um, you can ask your parents to rope you into conversations about um, what they would want to do in certain situations where they might not be able to care for themselves. Um, but do not go into this with the assumption that your sister is going to have to do it. It already kind of sounds like she's aware of this on your part. <laughs> and that's why uh, you say, I know she won't have the conversation. And you need to just like respect that she has the right to say no to this. Absolutely. Um, and it wouldn't be like, unloving or uncaring of her to say that it wouldn't be some sort of like um, abnegation of her responsibilities i think oftentimes families can assume a particular family member by virtue of their birth is going to be somebody's caretaker and you you just can't do that to somebody it is a very difficult and demanding job and obviously Part of the problem is that, like, not everyone has the health and medical care that they need. Um, and, sure. and paying for a caretaker is often, like, difficult and ruinous. So in, in that sense, I'm not suggesting, like, this is all your and your parents' fault. Like, the system is difficult and expensive. But um, it's not just like, oh, if she says no, I guess we have to respect that. It's like, she has every right to say no. Right. Absolutely. Yes, have these conversations. Yes, ask these questions. Do not ask the question, when are you going to be prepared to become my full-time caretaker? Um, Because you can't do that. That's just not how it works. (laughs) Figure out alternate arrangements. The good news is you are doing well now. Your parents are doing well now. There are nest eggs. So the the, the upside here is now's the time to plan for if something worse happens um, because crisis is not currently at your door. Right. I mean, it's, it's the perfect time to be having these conversations when when you don't have to worry about an immediate emergency and you have to have time to think through things as a as a group and to do it in sort of an organized way. Uh, I think it's the perfect time to be having these conversations. Yeah. So, again, you you deserve care. I want you to have plans in place and living wills and all kinds of things that will help protect you in the future. Um, you do not have the right to say to your sister, you know, <laughs> when are when are you moving in? <laughs> right. Um, all right. I, I, I like, by the way, that we're ending on a kind of not exactly a light note, but a, a, a <laughs> sense of like, it would be great if you could get some of them to move the needle. And if not, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, it's also very understandable. I, I think I relate to this letter writer. Yeah. Subject is I resent my friends who volunteer with animals. Dear Prudence, I volunteer regularly with organizations that help people struggling with homelessness and poverty. It's incredibly fulfilling work. Once or twice a year, I try to fundraise with generally positive results. I have multiple friends who are hardcore on the subject of animal rights. To be clear, 
I love animals. I even adopted my cat from a shelter. However, I find myself frustrated by the attention that these friends get when they post pictures of the puppies they're fostering or the fundraisers for farm animal sanctuaries that hit their goal immediately. Animals are cute. They make everyone feel good. I get it. People in crisis are more complex and don't always inspire the same kind of sympathy. I wish my friends who supported animal rights causes cared more about the suffering of humans. I want to try to recruit my animal-loving friends to join my efforts, but they seem uninterested. How can I overcome my resentment? Right. I, I also uh, have a lot of sympathy for the, the letter writer's position on this. However, as the letter writer knows, um, yeah, I mean, at, so at the end of the day, it's probably good that people care about animals also. And I think, um, I, I guess from my perspective, um, of course, it would be better if they were spending more of their time and attention and money on on other issues, potentially. But at the same time, I'm just glad that there are some people out there who are doing nice things for other other thing, other people, other other animals, anybody, people who are doing some volunteering or or doing some donating. I don't want to discourage that at all, uh, even if it's not exactly the cause that I would have chosen. And so, and certainly not taking anything away. Well. Uh, I assume it's not taking very much away, I guess, from from the volunteering that the letter writer's doing that that this is happening this way. Uh, so I guess uh, I feel like um, the the question really is like how how do you overcome the resentment for that uh, and for that? Well, um, I think the answer is maybe similar to what you were saying before, right? Um, it's a question of trying to redirect those thoughts. And so when you're feeling that resentment, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes sense to feel that resentment. And I think uh, feeling that resentment uh, is something that you should do. But you feel the resentment and you think about why you're feeling that resentment and you let it go. Yeah, I, I think certainly you can go back and say something like, hey, later in the year, I'm going to have another fundraising event coming up. This is really important to me. And I, I would love to be able to talk to you a little bit about why this is important to me um, and, and to set aside a little time for that conversation. Even if these are people you're close with to say something like, I love and value your work with animals, but I, it would mean a lot to me if you could set aside a little time, a little money, a little something for work with human people in need. Um, and you can do that in a way that's not like obviously animals are like right. unimportant or uh, you need to like stop working with animals, but just in a way that can kind of communicate. It would mean a lot to me. Um, and I think it's important if if they don't respond to that. I, I think at that point, letting it go is is, is the move. Yeah, absolutely. you know, you, you just won't always be able to convince people to get involved in your particular causes. It doesn't mean they're not generally conscientious it's just that everyone has um you know choices that they make if it feels like this bleeds over to all other areas of their lives if you feel like you have some friends who don't really give a shit about people and only care about animals and you decide i maybe don't want to spend quite as much time with this person you right can do that yeah i think getting other friends is always an option i mean yeah, you know yeah <laughs> it's yeah. yeah. Um, and absolutely, you know, it doesn't sound like this is everyone you know. You say that you're usually able to raise funds with positive results. And it is hard because I think there's also always, of course, people can c care about more than one thing. Um, of course, it's fine to care a lot about animals. It's also true that many people who are very hardcore on the subject of animals do so with a kind of uh, like animals are better than people vibe. Right, right. Sometimes that comes from a place of trauma. Sometimes it comes from, uh, you know, a place of contempt. Sometimes it can be both. I, again, I don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush. Um, but yeah, I do think that can sometimes, not always, but sometimes be a dynamic. 
And I, I think it makes a lot of sense if you think I want my core group of people to not have contempt for other human beings. Sure. That makes a lot of sense to me. That sounds fair. It seems yeah. like a reasonable choice. And uh, fortunately, I think um, the more that somebody spends time volunteering with other people who, you know, are, are doing the same um, kind of work, who are working, in this case, uh, with homelessness and poverty kind of issues, I mean, you're going to meet more people who care deeply about those issues. And so, yeah. you know, I think over time, um, you, will, you will have many opportunities to talk with people who care deeply about um, the issues that you care about. And I think um, if you want to try and avoid the animal lovers on social media every now and again or, yeah. you know, uh, take advantage of the tools that are available there to maybe not not read every day some new, like, thing about animals when you're trying to fundraise for um, some some other issues that seem more important, um, yeah. I, think, uh, I think that would be reasonable. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I think, too, that there's also a way in which you could possibly develop your own sort of tunnel vision. So, like, some of the stuff I, I totally get, which is, like, friends who are doing a lot of animal fundraisers but never want to talk or help you deal with somebody who's experiencing homelessness. I can understand that resentment. But stuff like, you know, they post pictures of pop puppies they're fostering. That strikes me as, like, totally neutral. Right. Or, or better than that strikes me as nice. Um, yeah. And I can imagine lots of people who love to foster cats and also want to donate to your fundraisers uh, to, to help people struggling with homelessness. So if those things are starting to bother you, too, maybe mute them, um, maybe mute animal contact content on your social media feeds just because you know it tends to bring up that sense of like but what about the people that i'm really committed to trying to help um just because i think that could potentially frustrate you to such an extent that you started to get mad at everyone who like wants to click a heart on a picture of a baby kitten and at that point you're that would be counterproductive right if you were that mad about animal rights or animal helps animal helps Animal animal helps sure yeah yeah Animal helps. Yeah, animal helps. Exactly. Well, um, Jason, I'm glad that we kind of got away from the legal questions because I think it's always nice to give somebody. I always try to make sure when somebody comes on with a particular area of expertise, I'm not just like, great, answer the things you already think about all the time. (laughs) But do you have any general legal advice you'd like to give broadly to everyone right now before you go? Wow, that's a that's a question that's designed to give an attorney a heart attack. I think no, the look on your de- face was I- definitely worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Just across the board legal advice that applies to everyone. Um, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> I guess my across the board legal advice that applies to everyone is if uh, if the police officers want to talk to you, tell them that you want to speak to your attorney. That's really good advice. Thank yeah. you, Jason. I think that is relevant to everybody, too. I, th- I think you never know is. when that's going to come up. You know? Exactly. Um, thank you so, so much for taking a little time out to come and advise uh, a lot of different people with me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been it's been really fantastic. I really appreciate the chance to, to be here. Yeah, fabulous. Have a great rest of the day. Come back soon. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening.
here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. The part that feels like a crisis is is the fact that like right now what you have that's untreated is like a, a devastating and painful relationship with a person in active addiction. So like you can't go find him, right? You can't hunt him down yourself. You don't have those resources. You can't make his legal problems go away. So there's nothing in terms of going out and trying to find and fix your son that you can handle right now or that you can be responsible for. But what you can do is is get help, whether that be through support groups, whether that be through a therapist, whether that through just be through calling your friends and saying, I need to talk about this. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudy pod.